and welcome back to The Scriptures Are Real. I'm uh, co-host Lamar, and I'm with my other co-host, Carrie. Hi, Lamar. How are you? <laughs> Good. This is a uh, the second part to an earlier one that we did about the Book of Abraham. We did sort of an intro to the Book of Abraham, where it came from, the papyrus, the scrolls, the, the mummies. We did a little bit of a background on where that was from. Uh, a little bit about Joseph Smith and how he translated it, and some ideas on that. Um, and we might talk about that some more, uh, if that's okay. But one of the things that we brought up in our earlier one, and some of our friends also uh, um, talked about in the feedback, was the facsimiles. And I, I, this is one of my topics that I got to say that I'm really geeked out about. I've always thought this is really cool. Since I was a little kid, looking at those things. I'm like, this is actual Egyptian hieroglyphs. And that's pretty cool. Does that mean that? And how's it mean that? What do they think? And so, and as I got older, I would see, well, how do Egyptologists see this today? Um, what does it mean? Are these actual, you know, can I write these down? Can I start translating other things? We're using this as my Rosetta Stone, that kind of stuff. So I know I'm talking fast and crazy, but that's kind of the, the exciting part for me. So let's talk about the facsimiles. And I have to say that if you want to geek out on uh, the facsimiles, that makes two of us. So we're, we're in good shape here. So. <laughs> That's awesome. And I know you have tons. I don't know how long we'll have to spend today, but there's so many things to get to. Um, let's talk about them. Uh, so to set this up for the audience, there's three facsimiles. And if you don't know what the facsimiles are, they're the pictures that, that appear in the book of Abraham. And one's at the beginning, one's kind of in the middle and one's, kind of near the end and the two of them are kind of square looking and there's one in the middle the number two is a round one and, and that's called the hypocephalus carrie will tell us about that so that's what the what the the facsimiles are and yeah, we've also, really really creatively named them facsimile one facsimile two and facsimile three so. <laughs> yeah we don't say abraham doing this and yeah. and and abraham doing that we have created facsimile. and the reason why they're called facsimiles let's talk about that these back when joseph smith had these uh, papyrus we didn't have a photocopier a scanner or whatever right. so let's talk really quickly about the the why we call them facsimiles because they are exactly that they they are a copy of what was seen on those scrolls so let's get into it real quickly about what we what that's about yeah so the they are uh facsimiles of the original drawings so uh joseph smith uh, had reuben headlock who was a member of the church come in and make some some uh cuts uh, it, there's some debate as to whether he first made a wood carving and he carved it by hand. And then he used that to make a lead, uh, then he poured lead into it and made a lead, uh, plate. That's probably what happened. Some people, he think he just made originally the lead and I'm not really an expert on how, uh, you know, 18th or 19th century printing processes. So I don't really know about that, but, but eventually what we still have are these metal cuts that are in mirror image of the originals because then you you put ink on them and you slap them on a paper and they come out looking the right way not in mirror image right but that's pretty impressive that he did that so that's what we have are these facsimiles of the originals and we only have the original of facsimile one that has survived the other two haven't survived uh so we only know them via the facsimile uh for facsimile one we can look at both the facsimile and the original so so you're saying that he's looking this guy tell me his name again reuben headlock Reuben Hedlock, he's looking at the actual papyrus right here, right? So mm -hmm. he has it here, and he makes a cut, whether wood or lead or both, yeah. on this side here, makes a mirror image of him. And then with this one, 
he prints using right. either stamp uh, wood stamp printing or he stamps them by putting ink on them like a like a regular yeah. printing press. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he put ink on. So what he used for sure for the printing was the lead one. Whether he the used the wood one. one to make the lead one, we don't know. But he uses the lead one. And these are in the the um, church uh, history office now. Every now and then they put them on display down where you can come in. Like if you're going to go to get uh, your, you can look at your ancestors' journals or something like that in Salt Lake. They've got a little display case. Every now and then they're on display there. Um, you can look at them on the Joseph Smith Papers website. Uh, they've got great images of these things. And so you can see the actual um, metal cuts that the facsimiles were made from there. Uh, and, but yeah, they put ink on them and, and put them just like you would with a stamp, right? Like a big uh, lead stamp, a big lead stamp. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So that's why it's called a facsimile because it isn't actually a photograph of these things. It's actually right. a, a printed piece of block that is now like a big stamp that's how they, they stamp how big are they do you know how big they are yeah they tried to make them life-size okay um, or so one-to-one -one ratio of the original so the um the uh originals for facsimile one and three and that's worth knowing facsimile one and three seem to have come from the same papyrus roll so mm -hmm. they would have been on the on a roll that was the same width and uh I've, somewhere i have the dimensions written down and you can find the exact dimensions on the um on the Joseph Smith Papers website, but I, I've seen them, and uh, I'd say it's maybe like about um, uh, eight eight inches tall, maybe a little bit less than that, and uh, I don't know, ten inches long, something along those. So uh, that's like so, eight inches tall, right? Yeah, there. yeah. So it's maybe maybe like closer that. to seven, six or seven inches tall, somewhere okay. in there, six six to eight, let's say. Uh, and someone's going to look this up and say, well, he was way off, but I'm just going off of my memory, right? And off of looking at my thumb and thinking and fingering how long are, and wide are those, but... Um, about the size, yeah, yeah okay. And, but and, it's about uh, this one-to-one -one size, okay, good. Yeah, then facsimile two was much larger. It was not part of a papyrus roll. It was a document that was meant to be put under someone's head. It's just a, a square document, so we'll... Uh, we'll talk about that more in a minute, but it was it was large enough that they had to make it a fold-out because they wanted to do it kind of life-size. They had to make it a fold-out in the newspaper. It was larger yeah. than one page could handle. I remember that. I remember that being um, they, in this Times and Seasons, it came out, it yeah. was produced, and so they were doing a, it was kind of like an exclusive exclusive thing you would have today, and so it was a fold-out like in a magazine. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right. So that's what the facsimile is, and I, I will mention one other thing or ask one other thing. Now, I understand, especially in, in the fact summary number one, and maybe you'll get into this, that the, the actual um, papyrus was torn here. The, 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 what, the, what he labels, what Joseph Smith labels as uh, figure number three, uh, which is the uh, idolatrous priest of Elkanah. Did I, is that pronounced Elkanah, you think? Yeah, yeah, probably so. Okay. Um, that actually is not the, the, the head was missing from the original papyrus, correct? They kind of filled that in. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, so uh, yes and no. It's it's a little bit tough to to know because um, the way we have it now, that's ripped off. Was it ripped off when Joseph Smith first got it, or did the, is that damage that happened after he acquired it? Mm, okay. That we can't tell. And if you look at, uh, so the, the papyrus was glued to paper, and if you look at the glue marks, it looks like uh, the glue marks go up above where the head has been. So that on the the, the papyrus is broken off where the head of that uh, priest is, um, 
and uh, it's someone is drawn in on the paper that, that it's been glued to the head of the priest. Okay. Um, and the glue marks are above that. So does that mean that they were really, really sloppy gluing? And we don't actually see evidence for that on any of the other papyrus that they've glued. Or does that mean that there was papyrus above there and it's since broken off or flaked off or disintegrated, uh, but they did have them uh, initially. And uh, we can't answer that question anymore, but it seems like there's a decent chance. We also can look at um, eyewitness accounts. And there are two eyewitnesses who say they saw the papyri and that they saw a priest holding a knife. And that's the part that would have been broken off and that they saw a priest holding a knife there. Now, one of those was a member of the church, and he's writing this after it's been published in the book of Abraham. So maybe he's influenced by having seen facsimile one. But the other one was not a member of the church uh, and records this fairly soon thereafter. And we, it, it would seem, has never seen the book of Abraham. So he wouldn't have seen that reproduction with the facsimile. And he talks about seeing a priest with a knife. So either A, that's what was explained to him, and he's remembering the uh, explanation rather than what actually uh, was on there, or, and I think this is more likely, he, um, he actually saw it, and it still had that on there. So uh, evidence suggests, yeah, here you can see this. Okay, although, I just pulled this up. For those who are, are just listening at home, I pulled up, um, you can pull this up on the, on the, uh, on the internet. Um, we we'll probably yeah. should leave some links down below. This is pulling from fairletterdaysaints.org. Yeah, and you can but get it from is, the the Joe Smith Papers uh, project as well, a, which is where it would be um, copyright issue free. So yes, Joseph Smith Papers is a great resource because that is um, has been officially vetted by the church and yeah, and and, and and you know they're showing it with permission, whereas anyone else, I don't know if they're showing it with permission or not, and I don't want to violate copyright. Oh, you know what? Maybe I should. Uh, Maybe but, I should pull it from well, that's there. okay. Fair, fair, I think, would have done that as well. I feel okay. fairly confident with fair. So what we're looking at here is some fragments, and this would be mounted on paper. And we can see in this one here, there's been there's a chunk missing where the head would be of the figure in black, which is listed as figure three. And there's a, a, a fair chunk missing in between here, which has the arms up, and that that's yeah, the arms like of the person on the on the uh, altar of the lion couch. And I think you're going to. Uh, talk about that and that's fairly yeah. important so we, that yeah. probably was there because you can see his hands are in the original parchment you can see the hands that are close to the yeah. flying figure which is listed as an angel so we know the hands were up there so anyway i guess getting back to what we were saying originally is we don't know exactly if this damage was done before or after um yeah and, and my but, reason but for it seems like there's a fairly good chance it was done after just based on the eyewitness accounts and the glue mark Okay, very good. So I just wondered because there was one other account that I read that the the priest would have had a different, right, um, a different headdress on. But anyway, yeah, and we'll talk about that. Uh, okay, a little later if that's all right. Go for it. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, go for it. So anyway, I just wanted to be clear on what the facsimiles are. They're actually print stamps that were made in the time of Joe Smith, and then they were featured in a newspaper. And we still have some of those stamps today. Okay, so um, yeah, why don't you go ahead and talk about. Uh, the facsimiles in whatever order you want to talk about them. And then let's, I'll ask some questions. All right, let's, uh, let's jump in and I'm I, maybe I'll, uh, for those who are watching and we're going to try and make this. So for those who are just listening, um, that it's no problem to, to understand what we're talking about, but this one is fairly image heavy. So we're also putting this on a YouTube channel and, um, we're going to, 
make it so that uh, those who are are wanting to see it can see it. So I've just gone to the church's website and I've pulled up facsimile one. Um, and uh, if we want to look at the original papyrus, maybe I'll stop sharing and, and you can put that back up. Lamar, oh yeah. But, yeah. Let me get that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, well, uh, yeah, I guess for facsimile one, why don't we put that up? That, that'd be better. And then I'll, uh, we can do the uh, other facsimiles uh, just from the church's website. Cause we don't have an original facsimile. I'll pull it from uh, the Joe Smith papers uh, one that will be, we know that that one's legitimate okay. to go to. In any um, case, anyway, go ahead while I'm pulling it up. Go ahead. And, uh, so, well, there, there are some important kind of background issues to go over. And some of these we went over in our previous episode on the book of Abraham. And I'll refer people to that, the discussion on what was Joseph Smith trying to tell us? Is he trying to tell us how ancient Egyptians would have seen it, how a specific group in Thebes, uh, a group of priests in Thebes would have interpreted this, how um, a group of Jews in ancient Egypt would have interpreted it? We, we don't know. And so uh, I'll refer you to the first episode for that conversation. But I just want to talk about the idea of interpretation in general. And it's, it's worth thinking through that when you're talking about drawings and what they mean, especially in really symbol-oriented and symbol-laden cultures such as ancient Egypt, which is maybe the grand champion of symbol-oriented uh, cultures, um, there, it, it's not simple because they're often meant to have, I mean, the, the beauty of symbols is that they have more than one layer of meaning. They're intended to have more than one layer of meaning, and they can be used in more than one way. Uh, sometimes not, but often that is the case. And, and so that's worth knowing. And it's also worth just kind of being really clear about our terminology. So I'm going to be clear about my terminology because sometimes as I encounter people talking about these things, they're really, really sloppy. So in, in our uh, episode uh, one about the book of Abraham, we talked about how Joseph Smith uses the word to uh, translate little differently than we do now. But for this episode, we're going to use translate the way we use the word translate. Um, because I hear people talk about Joseph Smith's translation of the facsimiles. Yeah, oh, good. Although, does it have the papyrus one that you were just showing us? I think that's what we want to look oh, at. Oh, um, you know what? I'm not as good at navigating this one here, so I'll try to bring it up. Um, yeah, you can bring it up how you had it already. Yeah, I'll, I'll anyway, pull it up. Here. I hear people talking about Joseph Smith translating the facsimiles. He didn't translate the facsimiles at all. He doesn't give us a translation of them. He gives us an interpretation of the symbols of the, the drawings, right? Uh, so he gives us that interpretation. He does sometimes make reference to the hieroglyphic text. So, for example, in facsimile 2, he'll say this is to be had in the temple, and this isn't to be had at all, and if the world can figure it out, so be it. Or in facsimile 3, he'll say, as indicated in the hieroglyphs above them, um, in, in which case he's referring to the, uh, the text, but he doesn't give us a translation of the, that text. He gives us a reference to it. And that, in fact, let me three, that's almost a translation, but it's not quite there to what I would call a translation. Um, but he, it, uh, it's close. But really, most of what we're talking about here is an interpretation of symbols. And that's important to be clear and distinct about because interpretation of symbols is a different thing than translating. When you translate, typically everyone is going to agree that's what this text says. Now, what it means, that's when you get into interpretation, right? What it it means when you say that, that's a different thing. But here's what it actually says. Whereas when we're talking about drawings, all you have, symbolic drawings, all you have is interpretation, a meaning that can be debated 
and that we can draw more than one meaning out of. And that's, that's worth knowing, right? So if we're going to look at Joseph Smith's interpretation of facsimile one, let's just, first of all, look at, in general, what he says it's about. He can says, you see my screen here where I'm Yeah, this is from? great. And I love having the two side by yeah. side. Um, for those who are able to watch, we've got uh, the facsimile and the original side by side. So on in the right case, side, this is what we have now. This is actually, we can look at this today. This is what was left of of that papyrus that was lost and then found, correct? Right. Okay. And then this is right here is what was printed yeah. in one of the early versions of the Book of Abraham. Okay. So what uh, Joseph Smith says this means is that it's a depiction of Abraham nearly being sacrificed by the Egyptian priest and being saved by an angel. Uh, and that's, that's the story Joseph Smith gives us. Uh, that is different than what uh, most Egyptologists would say. So let's address two things. We'll get to what most Egyptologists would say in a moment. Um, let's, let's look at just the, the story of what Joseph Smith says it means. Um, and, and I'll remind everyone that in our last episode, episode one on this, I talked about how there were a group of priests in Thebes, and this papyrus is owned by a priest from Thebes at the time period that we're talking about who are collecting Jewish um, religious elements and in incorporating them into their own religious rituals and, and spells. And uh, that I think it's possible that we have here a priest who was intending for these drawings to be interpreted or used for more than one text, both for the Book of Breathings and the Book of Abraham. But I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's, that's worth keeping in mind. In okay. any case, the question we have to ask ourselves, Joseph Smith says, You've got Abraham almost being sacrificed by an Egyptian priest. And we have to ask ourselves, did the Egyptians do this kind of thing? And I'll tell you, for a long time, I thought uh, that that question was irrelevant. Uh, and, and there's a reason why I thought that. Um, the text itself says that Abraham is not in Egypt when this happens, but he's in a place where there's Egyptian influence, but that it's clearly a mixture of Egyptian Mesopotamian and Can Canaanite. Well, maybe Mesopotamian. I don't know about that. It's probably not. It's probably just Egyptian and Canaanite influence. It kind of depends upon where Ur is, uh, whether there's Mesopotamian influence or not. But in any case, it, the text is clear about a Canaanite and a, an Egyptian influence. And, uh, and so we know that the Canaanites did engage in human sacrifice. And so I figured, well, that's the Canaanite-Egyptian syncretism there. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, I, I also had been taught by Egyptologists that Egyptians didn't engage in human sacrifice. And so I, people would ask me about that, and I'd say, no, they, they, they didn't engage in human sacrifice. This is the Canaanite influence. But then uh, I had a friend of mine who was an Egyptologist who said, you know, actually, I, that there is some evidence that, that the Egyptians engaged in human sacrifice. Or, and that term is a little bit loaded uh, because when we say human sacrifice, sometimes we think of things like what the Aztecs did and so on. And that's a very different thing. So maybe we can say ritual slain. That's a little bit, I mean, this is just what scholars do. They just come up with different terms so you don't take in all the baggage of everything else. So I'll keep saying human sacrifice, but by that, understand, I don't mean the way everyone else did human sacrifice. I'm talking about Egypt. Okay. Right. Um, okay. 
So when he told me the Egyptians did, and you ought to look into that, I started to look into it and I found evidence and I thought that's really interesting. I've been teaching they didn't. And uh, uh, this is, uh, and why did they do this? And, and why did they do it the way they did it? And so that actually became my dissertation topic, not human sacrifice, but ritual uh, killing. Uh, all right, let's say sanctioned killing. In fact, that's what I call it. When the state sanctioned killing for various reasons, why did they do it and what form did it take? And so I looked at all sorts of things, and that included what we would call human sacrifice, although I don't know that they would call it that. But, um, uh, and uh, it, it became very clear that there was a, a time and a place where they would do human sacrifice and reasons for doing it. And, uh, and so I just studied that from an Egyptological perspective, really, and I published a book on it and, and uh, became the person that was invited to uh, conferences to talk about that subject and wrote the encyclopedia articles on it and that kind of thing. Um, uh, and became really well accepted that the Egyptians were doing human sacrifice in specific places for specific reasons at specific times. So honestly, after I had done all of this research just from an Egyptological perspective, then I looked at it from a Book of Abraham perspective, because I'd done that for its own sake. It was just so interesting as an Egyptologist. But then I looked at it from a Book of Abraham perspective, and I realized, oh, this ties in perfectly. Abraham is in the place well, in a time where it did it, in one of the places where we, we uh, have evidence that they could do it, um, we, we don't have a lot of specific evidence. We just know they did it both in and outside of Egypt. So that includes everywhere. So, of course, he's in a place um, but uh, where it could happen. But in, in a time when it's happening, and, he, and uh, it, the, the reason that he says that he is nearly sacrificed fits in with the reasons why they would have done it. And so the book of Abraham, I've published this both uh, in Egyptological, I, I haven't talked about Abraham in the Egyptological sources, but I've published all of the, the background information in Egyptological sources and then in LDS sources, because they're the ones interested in Abraham. I've, I've published how this works so perfectly with him, and so is my colleague John Gee. It, it fits perfectly with the Egyptological picture that they would sacrifice him. But this is one of those times I had an aha moment where the scriptures became more real to me. Uh, and it's not particularly significant, but it's just it kind of fun how it becomes real. One of the things now, that I, oh, go ahead. Can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. Uh, so the priest of Elkanah, we're using Joseph's translation here. Mm -hmm. Was this priest actually Egyptian or is this, he's not in Egypt at that point, is he? He's not, but it seems like he is Egyptian. Some of the text talks about him being uh, an Egyptian priest, but Elkanah is a, a Canaanite god. Right, so what you okay. have is is this syncretism that we talked about in episode one, where they are are mixing religious traditions and sometimes even gods, and making them both Egyptian and Canaanite, and okay. and uh, so on. So it, it just becomes a hodgepodge of religious practices all mixed together, and that's what's happening here. Right, because now what we have these facsimiles or the, the original papyrus would have been later, um, later written down later, I should say, yeah. than when this all happened. So this all happened to um, this happened to Abraham much earlier. When yeah, he was in about younger, 2000 he, BC. Right. And the and so papyrus that, kinda, that, that we have is about 200 BC. Right, right. So this is a later version of So someone else is, is capturing it, whether, whether Abraham is actually capturing it or someone later is, is, is yeah. reprinting what they saw before and putting it in the Egyptian style. We don't know all those things, but that's right. But and we Elkanah, don't know if, if there was a drawing when Abraham first made it, he may not have had drawings in his record. It may have been later that a drawing is added. 
Okay, now this drawing is specifically referred to in the body of the text, correct? Right. It says, okay, right. so is that- So if Abraham it's added later, then that... someone adds that part of the text later as well, which happens all right. the time. Sure, yeah, like a scribe or, or somebody yeah. who's later is, is adding in that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Mormon does that throughout the Book of Mormon. He yeah. adds uh, commentary throughout. There's other people, there's other scribes that yeah. add commentary throughout the Book of Moses because they re clearly refer, or not Book of Moses, but- Genesis, they clearly refer to things that would be after Moses' time and yeah. you know, things like that. So, yeah. okay. All right. Well, great. So, all right. So I just want to ask you that question. So we don't know if this priest is specifically Egyptian necessarily. Well, the text not... suggests that he is Egyptian. They could be. Okay. All right. But he's clearly also operating as a Canaanite priest, okay. which is Very exactly good. the kind of thing that happened. Okay. So I was just going to say, and, and again, this isn't important, but it is one of those times the scriptures became more real to me. We have the, the drawing here with a knife, but mm -hmm. you have all these ancient traditions that weren't uh, available in Joseph Smith's day, or at least not to him, uh, about Abraham nearly being sacrificed. And, uh, and they typically involve burning. They wanted to burn him rather than use a <laughs> knife. And I always well, thought you know, that's odd. Why you want to get rid of somebody, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> why why are they going to burn when this has a picture of a knife? And then interestingly enough, as I went back through my own um uh writings when I was uh, kind of taking my dissertation and preparing it and turning it into a book, it suddenly hit me because I was reading lots of texts where they'd say, Well, we slay, you know, we take this and we uh this animal. Or, and uh, often they say, okay, and then I killed these people and I did it the same way we did these animals and I sacrificed them the same way we did these animals. And what they did with the animals is they first slew them with a knife, then they burned them. Right. I thought, yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense. If, that's the same thing we know with the Old Testament. You didn't just throw the, the lamb on the altar or on the fire while he was alive, right? You killed it first with a knife and then right. you put it on and burned it. And, uh, yeah, you and did that's certain why. things with the blood, sprinkling them on the horns of the altar and different things, right? So you did the first the knife and then as a ritual, and then you burn the rest of it later. That's right. And okay. so that, that's one of those times where suddenly the picture of what they were intending to do to Abraham when I used both Egyptological and Latter-day Saint sources just came alive for me. And I thought, ah, oh, this is what they're trying to do to Abraham. This is a real story. It's a real picture. It fits perfectly with everything. So that was fun. Um, okay, very good. But, but uh, so Joseph Smith says that this is an attempt to sacrifice Abraham. Most Egyptologists would not say that. Um, but uh, what they do say is, is, is complicated. So let's jump into that. Most of them, if they looked at this drawing, their first quick initial knee-jerk reaction would be to say that it's an embalming scene. I mean, or a mummification scene. That's the same thing because we have tons and tons and tons of those. And they often have a person on a lion couch. So you can see that, that it's a, a, an altar or a, a, a stand that has a lion head, a lion tail, and the legs are lion's legs and feet, right? So we call that right, a lion yeah. couch. Um, okay. And there are tons and tons of these that are drawn uh, or, or that... Uh, yeah, are, are these scenes that are drawn with the person being mummified and a figure leaning over it that is uh, has a, a jackal head. And, and we typically, although it turns out it's not always the case, but we typically think of that as Anubis, who is a god who oversees preparation for death and so on. He's, okay. he's uh, symbolized by the jackal. And so people look at it and they, there are enough similarities. They say, oh, that's what it is. And, and they move on. But it just means they haven't looked at it closely. 
because uh, there are a number of key differences that make it so it can't be a mummification or an embalming scene, one of which is that he's not being mummified, right? All of the embalming scenes, the person is being mummified. They look like a mummy. That's not the case here. This person is moving, right? He's, uh, he's got his legs moving, his arms are up, and there's been some debate because of this part that's broken off where you can only see part of one hand where people have asked, is it really two hands up or not? And there was an LDS, a non-LDS Egyptologist who looked at this carefully and he said, no, it's got to be two hands. It can't be anything else. Um, that, that's what it is. And, and I think he's right. I don't know how else we could interpret it. But anyway, um, it, it just doesn't fit with an embalming scene. It's not that. So if we want to look, then what are its close parallels? There aren't any perfect parallels. This scene is unique, right? And I think that's significant, and we'll come back to that. But there are some decent parallels, and uh, that most of them are found in, in temple scenes. Now, that's interesting because this was owned by a priest who worked in a temple, right? And uh, in fact, there was a non-LDS Egyptologist who pointed out this part that is figure 11, the very bottom part that has these kind of niches in it that we would typically say is, as an Egyptologist is a representation of the palace facade and so on. Um, anyway, he said that, that kind of thing you find in temple drawings, you don't find that in funerary papyri except for here. So again, we see some unique elements that, that suggest that this priest is incorporating some things from his ritual activity into the, uh, the papyrus. And that's interesting because this ritual activity involved uh, rites where you would try and kill people or protect them from being killed and so on. And that fits in well with this story as well. Um, it also now, is this it, a good time for me to ask you about the about the figures down below there that we would normally think of? Let's let's do that part. in just a second if that's all okay, right. Okay, sure. Okay, yeah, please. Yeah. So let me just finish. Um, uh, that this is clearly closer to temple scenes, and the the scene that it's closest to are a couple of scenes in a temple called Dendera. Um, and uh, those scenes have texts associated with them, and a number of the texts are about killing the, the person or saving the per trying to kill the person and saving them from being killed. Hmm. Uh, that and and so this gets into what you're going to ask because some of the figures that are involved in this getting rid of the person who is trying to kill someone and and saving and protecting the person, which is actually what this story. It, it, Joseph Smith tells us this story is about. It's about the priest being killed so that he can't kill Abraham, right? The angel slays the priest and then Abraham lives. So uh, it, it, that's an interesting little twist there. But the characters in these texts in Dendera that are most frequently associated with protecting the person and getting rid of the, the dangerous force are the four sons of Horus. And Egyptologically, right. we would usually say that those drawings under the altar or the, the lion couch are the four sons of Horus. So that's, that's a, yes. a, a really interesting element. Now, Joseph Smith is going to say there's something else, and, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But there is an interesting tie-in with the, that here. So the, the closest parallel actually matches fairly well with what Joseph Smith said. I don't think it's a true parallel. This is a unique drawing. But the closest parallel actually matches fairly well with what Joseph Smith said. Now let's Rick, look at. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, um, do you want to talk about canopic jars now, or do you want to talk about? No, let's let's just finish this one. Okay, yeah, thread, yeah. If no, it's please right. go ahead. Let's yeah. look at the unique elements. Um, okay. The unique elements are a, a couplefold. Uh, one, you see that he's in this kind of uh, kind of kilt thing. Um, he, uh, it, it, the way it's done in the facsimile, it looks like it's a leotard or unitard or something. Like but if you look at the something. original, yeah. yeah, 
if you look at the original, even the part that seems to have been drawn in by someone later, um, it, it doesn't look like he's wearing that all the way up. It's just the lower part. Uh, so on the, the original, it's just the lower part that has this wrap on. And it's probably um, this kind of uh, a kilt thing that we see uh, sometimes Egyptians wearing. And there are a couple of scenes, not many, of the hundreds of scenes that are somewhat similar to this. There are only a couple that have someone in a kilt. And we get down to very few when we have someone with, with the kilt, with the legs moving. Uh, and and the, the kind of bird figure there that Joseph Smith tells us is an angel. Um, and again, I think it's likely that this was being used so that it could work for both the Book of Breathings and the Book of Abraham. So uh, I, I, I think there's a number of interpretations that can be drawn from this, but at least one of them would be that Joseph Smith uh, or that Abraham is nearly being sacrificed. But what is unique? The two hands up seems to be unique. I'm not aware of that anywhere else. Other Egyptologists have pointed out that this is unique. There's another really, really interesting and unique element that is not on the facsimile, the way it's printed in our, our Pearl of Great Price, but is on, on the original papyrus. And that's the placement of the priest. This is one place where Reuben Headlock made a mistake. Okay, if you look right at here, the placement so. of the priest on right. the original, he is in between the legs of the person on the lion couch and the lion couch itself. Whereas in the facsimile that Reuben Headlock uh, made, he has him behind all of it. Right. And that's something as an artist, you have to be kind of careful and intentional to draw someone in between two different objects. That doesn't happen accidentally. That, that you, have, you have to do that intentionally. So he's so, in between the person so on had, the, the couch and the couch itself. If you're, follow, if you're looking at this visually, you can see here on the papyrus itself, you can see that lion couch in the background. And this, this priest here is in front of that couch because it doesn't go through him right here, right? So he's standing in front of this couch, but Abraham's legs here are in front of him. Right. So, so he's that not means on the that table, behind the table, he's, the, the table's behind him somewhat, and Abraham, or this figure anyway, is not all the way on the table then, because the priest that's is exactly right. right there. Yeah, that's okay. exactly right. He's not all the way on the table, which, which suggests he's moving either on or off. Right. And if he's moving on, then that priest is really in the way, right? That doesn't make <laughs> yeah. a lot of sense. And so the most likely thing is that he's moving off and the priest is trying to stop it, which Max matches really well with what Joseph Smith tells us this means. And I find that interesting. And there are another, uh, another of other elements in this that just really point towards um, a temple connection. And uh, again, because, this was owned by a priest who was involved in rituals that match this story. Uh, that, and that's part of what I've been working on. Again, even just this morning, I was uh, kind of going through the final edits of an article I have that's coming out on this in an Egyptological source. Uh, there's a real temple connection here that works with the, this particular priest uh, that makes me think that he would be interested in the story of Abraham and in depicting it this way. So I find that to be just fascinating. And we can't spend this long on all the facsimiles or, or everything, but I, I find just kind of as we start out, it's worth going through these things. Oh, but the hypocephalus, we got to get into that. But anyway, Yeah, we'll what, get that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, you, you wanted to talk about the, the canopic uh, jars and the so, jars underneath. All right. I, I, uh, I have a little bit of knowledge in, in Egypt. And I, like I said, I've been following it for a long time, not to your level, obviously, but but I, I've done a quite a bit of study and, and looking back at this as, as an adult, after I had done some research, I'm like, well, those are clearly canopic jars and canopic right. jars 
and you correct me if I have anything factually incorrect. Canopic jars, let me grab a picture. This is what a canopic jar would look like. Is if someone was being, um, if someone was going to be embalmed and mummified, they would take out certain organs and put them in these jars. One jar mm -hmm. would hold one thing, and one jar would hold another thing. And and I don't know which one the hearts and which one the entrails. Well, the heart stays the in your body because you need that in your body. But the oh, okay, the, so the heart the stays liver in. and stuff. Yeah. Okay, so they go in different parts. But this is what the the canopic jars would look like um, from a tomb that had them intact. And you can see they're kind of close. This would be Horus or the owl right here. Well, it's not and Horus. This, it's one of his sons. But one of his sons. Yeah. But is one of his sons also uh, a falcon? Yeah. An owl? A, fal yeah, or a falcon. A falcon. That's, yeah, yeah. That's right. Horus is an owl. He's a falcon. Right? No, no. He's Horus is also a falcon. They're both falcons. Oh, that, they change. They change a bit. Okay. Yeah. But this one's clearly a bird. Yeah. <laughs> this one's clearly a bird. This one is a jackal, mm -hmm. right? This one's also so figure a, six is a jackal. So the five a is a jackal. bird and oh, six is five a, is a is bird, a, right? Yeah, six, six is, is a jackal. jackal. And seven is a what would you call that? It's a baboon. Is it a baboon? Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a baboon here. Here's another picture of it here that looks like these are from Wikipedia. So that's clearly a, a baboon a monkey type of thing. And this is a jackal. There's your bird. And then one of them is a looks like a person, right? They both yeah. in both of these one here. Uh, again, I'm pulling these these uh, pictures from Canopic Jars. So if you look up Wikipedia, Canopic Jars, it'll have the same pictures. You can look those up later if you're just listening. But this one here has a picture, a figure of a person. This one here is a person. These are just different versions of the Canopic Jars. So anyway, so as an adult, I'm looking at this going like, well, these are clearly Canopic Jars. Why does he have a Canopic Jar in the thing of Abraham? A mummification thing. So how does that fit in with what you're saying? You said that was kind of an epiphany of like, Hey, this is right. So how does that fit in? How does, if a, a critic would say, oh, he's just copying. These are clear. This is a couch scene and these are canopic jars and this is nothing more than a mummification. So how is this not a mummification scene and really a, 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 a depiction of Abraham's story? Again, you have, um, he's not being mummified. That's the first clue. <laughs> I mean, that, it's not a mummification scene. He's not being mummified. Um, second, the four sons of Horus are gods in and of themselves. And uh -huh. so uh, the saying that these are different gods is, is perfectly reasonable. And uh, we know, again, that you get the syncretation of, of gods. So uh, you get um, various Egyptian gods that are associated with uh, Canaanite gods. So, for example, um, the priest who owns this facsimile He's, he's a, a priest for three different gods. One of them is a, a god who's called Min and a specific form of Min, Min who massacres his enemies, who is syncretized with a Canaanite god, Reshef. Wait, wait, and and so you... we know that Min and Reshef are thought of as the same person. You might call him Min, you might call him Reshef. These, the, it's the same god with a Canaanite and an Egyptian identity. As All right. Were. Now, before you go on, when you say the person who owns these, I think I know what you're talking about, but maybe we explain this. The person who owned this papyrus. The person who owned the papyrus, like before the, the, in Egypt, before he was in buried, Egypt. he owned right. the papyrus. Yeah. The he, one who commissioned it to be or, created. Right. He commissioned. So the person who actually created the papyrus, who owned it or commissioned yeah. or did it or, owned or maybe it, created it himself. We don't created know. Created himself. Right. So he, you're talking about that he's the owner of it originally who yeah. lived somewhere around 200. 200. Yeah, and how do we BC. know stuff about how do we know stuff about that? Particular if you look in priest? the furthest column on the original uh, one, uh, one right to right or the left, top, yeah, you can see a, a falcon depicted there, 
Just move your arrow to no, no. Uh, in the column uh, of text, you move your arrow to the right just a little bit. Right, right there. Okay, that's a falcon. Okay, right that's here. his name, Hor. So Horus. this is the guy who owned this. Right. Now this will not be in the Book of Abraham as you're looking at right. uh, the facsimile. This, this is only on the in the papyrus, papyrus that text. you have. Right, right. And, so and his name is Hor or Horus, and then you see his titles right after that, and so on. Um, so he basically has a signature. He's he has a signature. Yeah. On like I own this papyrus. This is mine. This is property. Property. Uh, it's it's because the spell is about him, right? Oh, okay. they always are right. about about a specific individual. Okay. So, but to go back to this, then I would say okay, that so you have you have these four uh, sons of Horus that it would seem to me are being syncretized with some Canaanite gods. And Joseph Smith tells us names of these gods, and we they're all attested. We can find they're all real gods. He didn't. So he either is the best guesser in the world in making up names of gods that actually are gods or uh, he's inspired, right? Those are your two choices. Um, now this is important. I think so. Let, let's focus on this for just a second. He says that these are names. Now these names, the sons of Horus are not these names or are they? No, no, no. Those no. aren't the names of the sons of Horus. Yeah. Yeah. But those are actual, these right here. If you're looking at the uh, facsimile, and if you look at the translation, or the explanation, below, or it's explanation. not a translation. It's, yeah, right. that's right. Not, that's right. Yeah, if figures five through through eight, right? Right. Figures five through eight. It will say idolatrous god of Elkanah, and then it will say the idolatrous god of Libna, idolatrous god of Mac Macra, Ma Macra, and then eight is the idolatrous god of Koresh. That's how mm -hmm. he labels them. And so right. someone who's not in the church says, hey, these are Canopic jars, and this is clearly the son of Horus. Like, who's the falcon son of Horus? You'd say that was, yeah. you know. Uh, that, oh, I, I, I don't remember there which one has which name, to be honest. There's uh, Duamutef and Happy and so on, but I don't remember which one was the falcon okay. and which one wasn't. Anyway, but you say, but, wait, how, how did uh, how did Joseph he get those? These are not the, we know what the name, the name of this guy is this, the name of this guy is this, yeah. the name of this guy. But, but. So but what I, Joseph said here is these are actual Canaanite gods. Right. So let me let me put it uh, this way. Mm -hmm. If this is a drawing that was intended to serve uh, both the Book of Breathings and the Book of Abraham, then one way you interpret those characters is as the four sons of Horus. And another way you interpret it is as syncretized gods, the four sons of Horus syncretized with uh, Canaanite gods which Canaanite gods we know actually exist. And if you want to read an article about this, go to pearlofgreatpricecentral.org and you can find an article where it goes through the evidence, the ancient evidence for those four Canaanite gods. Some of them are better uh, okay. attested than others, but, but we know they all exist. So, uh, so it works both ways. And anytime it works both so, ways, it makes me think it's intended both ways. How did Joseph Smith know the names of these gods? Were they, were they prevalent Canaanite gods? Uh, not, I mean, we know about them now, but no, they, they were not. So he either, as I said, it, it made them up and is just one darn lucky guy to be able to make up four names and they turn out to be the names of, of actual Canaanite gods or he's inspired, right? Those are your two options. Right. But, but they, they weren't known at the time in 18, no. whatever this was, 1835. 35? Okay, 1835. Well, this is published in 1842, this. so I don't know exactly when he made this explanation. So maybe as late as 1842. Okay, as late as between 1835 and 1842, we know the translation is happening. So yeah. um, anyways, but he just happens to guess these Canaanite gods that we figure out later. 
Yeah. So he, wow, he, he might be very okay. lucky, lucky guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's yeah. the luckiest guy okay. ever if he's making this stuff up because he's, he just gets it right again and again. And this, yeah, this happens many, many other times yeah. in, in all different parts of scripture. He's translating. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm really kind of belaboring this point, but that's because I know a little bit about these ones. And I, and I wanted to know that I wanted to ask you that since I knew you graduated in a PhD in Egyptology, I'm like, oh, I got to ask Carrie this stuff. And so we've talked about it a little bit, but now I'm really getting a chance to dig into it. Okay. Yeah. Continue. There's some other interesting things. Let's just touch on one other thing and then we better move mm -hmm. on because this is getting yeah, too yeah. long and, and uh, <laughs> I know. I'll actually have to go somewhere soon. But um, the uh, figure nine, which looks mm -hmm. like a crocodile, and Joseph Smith. Down here says, at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Joseph Smith this is the idolatrous god of Pharaoh. Um, that that's interesting because Joseph Smith or, or in Abraham's day, there was a fairly strong connection between the crocodile and, and the Pharaoh. Uh, and so it works quite well in, in those regards and it, it doesn't work so well at other times, but anyway, it works fairly well then. So, um, maybe let's jump to Abra to facsimile three, if that's okay. okay. You bet. I'm going to... And, and I can bring it up on my screen, or you can do it on yours. Or go ahead. Go ahead. Set, set it up anyway, and I'll, I'll, I'll pull these things up here as I can. I'm okay. just not as good at getting so, around Joseph's papers. Facsimile 3 is um, it was also owned by Horace, uh, this priest, and it was probably on the same papyrus roll. Uh, and and uh, people say that facsimile one, that kind of drawing, was often associated with a book of breathings. There's only one other time that it, a drawing that's not exactly like this, but somewhat similar, was ever associated with a book of breathings. So it's not often, it's not typical, it's it's atypical, but it's not 100% unheard of, but it's atypical. Facsimile three, a, a similar drawing is fairly typical of the book of breathings. Um, but again, we finally looked at this. For years, I've been saying we need to look at this, and then I've had a, a graduate student who did his uh, thesis on this and compared very carefully. And while it's it's fairly similar to uh, other drawings, uh, facsimile three has some unique elements. There are some things about it that are different than any other drawing, and it's completely unique. Would you like me to just share my screen and, and yeah? And can you can you? Well, I can pull it up from the regular church website. Are we okay with doing that? Would yeah, that's actually what I was going to do. So oh, okay, I can pull that up real easy. I, I just yeah. didn't, I was trying to pull it up from the uh, uh, using Joseph Smith, uh, oh, Joseph Smith papers. No, I promise, that's folks, fine. we're going to get better at this as we uh, understand <laughs> our capabilities. But, yeah, uh, well, that's all right, and we don't want to focus too much on the <laughs> images because most people are just listening anyway instead of watching. But um, yeah, but this is the best part. These are images that we got to look yeah. at. So whether you're listening now. You got to look at them later because these are yeah, fascinating. That's right. Go, okay, go, go look at them later. So I would just say that there are some things of these that are uh, about this drawing that are unique, the way that they're positioned, the way that the, they're dressed and some different things along those lines. Uh, we need to get an article out on that. But if you want to look it up, you can just uh, search for the thesis by Quentin Barney uh, where he goes through this. Um, okay. Let me pull this up here. So there's not a tremendous amount to say about facsimile three. Uh, other than uh, it's often associated with a judgment scene and mm -hmm. uh, it's not a judgment scene, but it is what I would call a presentation scene, which is typically not all the time, but typically what you see right after judgment, you're successful in judgment. So then you get presented to Osiris. Egyptologically, that's what we would say um, this represents. Um, but interestingly enough, and I find this really fascinating. This kind of little presentation scene here that's not attached to a judgment scene, that's just this presentation scene, 
It's it's pretty common. You find it in lots of different places, including on stelae. Now, stelae are um, they're the ancestors of our tombstones that are curved. You know, the kind of classic one you put out at Halloween that's like a, a slab that has a curved top. Those are right. designed after Egyptian stelae, uh, the, the, which were uh, the uh, similar shaped, only usually larger stones cut with that shape, put in front of people's tombs to say something about the person in the tomb. And we find a number of those that have this drawing at the top of the stele. Usually there's a drawing in that part that has the curve and then it's text underneath it. There are a number of these that have this drawing at the top of the stele. And John Gee, my, my uh, colleague at BYU, who's a, a great Egyptologist, um, he found a number of these where when they named the person on the, the throne, so usually uh, most of the time Egyptians say that this is Osiris on the throne. Um, is that figure one? Yeah, figure one. Yeah, figure figure one right here. He's uh, the second figure on the left-hand side, and he clearly has a chair. He's the only figure yeah. that's seated, right? Yeah. And okay. uh, most of the time, you would say that that's Osiris. But there are a number of instances in Egypt where it's labeled as either Abraham or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Egyptians themselves associate this kind of drawing with Abraham. At times, uh, which is also interesting. I didn't mention this, but with facsimile one, we also have a similar drawing that's associated with Abraham by Egyptians in a papyrus. So that's uh, at, at, at least once associated with Abraham by Egyptians. Um, and this one is as well. Uh, so that, that's just an interesting connection. I don't know how much uh, we can say with that. This is still the facsimile we need to do the most work with. We haven't done as much research on this one as the others, and we, we need to figure out more about it. The puzzling part for this one, and this is the mm -hmm. part where we get closest to a translation, and it's the most puzzling part, is that Joseph Smith tells us that these characters are uh, Abraham and Pharaoh and the waiter and so on. Um, and uh, that's not what, how we would normally interpret them Egyptologically. Now, as I've said, you can get these characters being labeled as different characters at different times by the Egyptians themselves. So uh, we need to be just a little bit more humble and not say, I am sure I know what that means just because it, it, it means that in these 700 drawings, because we can still find 20 others, it doesn't. So you, you're methodologically unsound. If you say it has to be this other thing, because that's what I've seen it being elsewhere. There are too many exceptions, right? Including exceptions where that says that, figure one is Abraham. Um, so Joseph Smith says it means one thing. Egyptologically, we usually say it means another thing, but there are exceptions. But Joseph Smith, in a number of cases, says that this is so-and-so, as can be seen by the hieroglyphs above their head. And when we translate okay, those yeah, hieroglyphs... It says it down here. Yeah, mm -hmm. so for example, um, figure five, Shulam, one of the king's principal waiters, as represented by the characters above his, his hand. In that case, it's mm -hmm. his hand. All right. Um, now, this is one of the times where I wish we had the original, because what we have is only this facsimile, where someone who wasn't particularly familiar with Egyptian was trying to, in mirror image, in wood or metal, carve and replicate these symbols. And you can't always tell uh, what, oh, now you can see the metal cuts there. You've got that. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, I pulled up uh, from Joseph Papers. Yeah. From Joseph Papers, I pulled up the actual lead stamp that we were talking about before. They call it right. cut. So this is what the what this would have been printed from, and again, it's in mirror image because it's meant to be 
inked on this side and stamped, right? Right, so. right. But they're not always legible. You cannot tell what those hieroglyphs are all the time. So you'll find uh, both LDS and non-LDS Egyptologists who have translated these things, they are translating them using good guesses and parallels from other places. Um, but we can't really tell what they say. But in we, none of yeah. the cases does it seem like it says what Joseph Smith says it says. Okay. So that's, that's difficult to know what to do with, right? He's right on so many little instances, including that figure one can be Abraham, right? Again, wow, that's got to be either the luckiest guess ever or he's inspired that it sometimes is Abraham that is labeled in that, that seat. But uh, on, on this thing, it doesn't make sense. He says it says this, and we can't always tell what it says, but whatever it says, it doesn't say what he said it says. Uh, and, and what am I to make of that? Uh, to be honest, I don't really know. I'll give you my best guess, but this is just a guess. I don't know. If I had to guess, I would say Joseph Smith knew through inspiration who we should think of those characters being, and then assumed that that's what it said overhead. Okay, so can you, as an Egyptologist, can you read that? Can you read well, these, that's what I'm saying is these... that these are so poorly um, uh, replicated by Reuben Headlock that right. most of the time we can't really fully read it. Um, and so we either guess at what we think it maybe should say or we find parallels that are kind of close or something along those lines. Sometimes okay. we can, sometimes we can't. It's a long debate that I'm not going to get into now. Again, you could go to um, uh, Quentin Barney's uh, his uh, thesis where he is more clear than any of the people who are translating. So you'll get even LDS uh, Egyptologists who have translated uh, the papyri and different things that will give translations for this, like Michael Rhodes or non-LDS one, Robert Rittner, and they'll give you translations of that material. And they aren't really transparent about the fact that they can't really read it uh, and that they're, they're kind of giving educated guesses and drawing in parallels from other places. Uh, Quentin Barney, as he goes through it, he says, okay, this can be read and this can't be read. And, and he's right. I've, I've assessed what he's saying. And, and he's right um, that we can't read a lot of this and we're just giving a good guesses. But even with our best guesses, they, they're not saying what Joseph Smith said. They said, so I'm going to assume that Joseph Smith also assumed that he knew. Uh, and again, we don't know. Is he trying to tell us what an ancient Egyptian would have seen in this? Is he telling us what or the Egyptian priest who maybe was using this for both the Book of Readings and the Book of Abraham, the two different ways he would have interpreted this, or is he just telling us and what we should interpret it to learn the lessons we should learn? I don't know. But he tells us what we should understand these figures to mean, and then he assumes that's what it says in the hieroglyphs above his head. That would be my best guess. Again, I don't really know what else to do with it. Um, okay, but so, I find look, that to be a more likely explanation than the explanation that he guessed right about the names of the Canaanite gods. He guessed right about uh, that this could be Abraham on here and a bunch of other things we'll look at that he guessed right on all of these things. I think it's harder to explain that away than it is to say, oh, Joseph Smith assumed what these hieroglyphs meant and, and uh, he was incorrect in that assumption. Now we don't have the original papyrus for for this one right here, like right. we did that we were showing earlier. Right. This that's why it's so hard gone. to deal with these glyphs. Okay. Yeah, because we can't go back and go. Well, he got this little part here, and that little that right. was filled in, and this isn't filled in. I once tried to take the hypocephalus and uh, and copy some of those characters out onto a different format just to write them out, just to kind of mm -hmm. practice to doing it. 
And I found it extremely hard, by the way. It is to, hard. To look back, I'm like, that's not as easy you think to, to copy this to that and make it sure. Because what people may not understand about Egyptian uh, hieroglyphs is that they can be written right to left, left to right, or top to bottom. Yeah, or bottom yeah. to top. And sometimes to all of the above. So right, if, if exactly. you want to talk about ha things having more than one meaning, let mm -hmm. me just give you an idea. And, and this takes some serious brain power, but there are texts where the Egyptian authors wrote them in columns that, that kind of create a grid where it says something and it was intended to say that as you read them going from top to bottom um, and uh, as you read them going bottom to top and as you read them going left to right and as you read them going right to left. It's a text that is intended to be read four different ways and it actually says wow. something Four, four different things. Uh, it's all correct and it's all intended, right? Now, again, if the Egyptians are capable and like to do that, how ridiculous uh, is it of us to say this has to mean this one thing, right? That's our Western society, legalistic uh, kind of mindset that one thing has one meaning and it shouldn't be interpreted any other way. Right? Our, our legalistic society is eschewing multiple interpretations, and so we impose that societal norm on the Egyptians, and it's silly and ridiculous. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's just methodologically unsound to say that this has to mean this, so Joseph Smith was wrong or right, even. We can't say either right. one. You know, and, we, and we talked about this a little bit in one of our earlier topics. We talked about how uh, Isaiah particularly was able to talk about a past event, a past king, um, right, or, or historical event that happened to him, but be relating it to his current time and also being related to a, a future time. So there's three yes. many things happening in these layers, and the the, the scriptures, and this is what may, why we read them over and over because there's so many different meanings and layers that can be in there. It can mean this thing that time or something different a little bit later or. Christ refers to this then, but it means something, you know, they're being interpreted and reinterpreted. So part of it is being interpreted by the spirit. Well, in this case, you typically, in Egyptian, in, in my rudimentary understanding, if you want to know which way you read it, typically you look to where the, where the figures are facing, and that's where you start. You start usually. Front, usually. Now you read into the faces of the birds or the animals, usually. But, but you know, when we, when we write stuff, like we write poetry, and when you write poetry, which a lot of these things are like poetry, yeah. right? It's, it's not just a, this happened to me. It's not a historical thing. It's kind of a, a poem about what's happening or a, a story about what's happening. So if you write a poem or if you write a, a song, for instance, it has a lot of allegorical things in there. There's figures and things and metaphors and symbols that are happening in there that aren't exact translations. And so when we get to these things and we say, oh, this, they meant this, I'm like, well, are you sure? That's what I meant, because maybe it meant other things, or maybe yeah. it meant multiple things. I mean, there's right. lots of different ways. Songs are a great uh, a great way to think of that. A lot of Absolutely. times you say things in the songs, but you're referring to, um, you know, the, 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 your eyes are like pools of water. Well, are they really pools of water, or what are you saying about the water? Are they invite, you know, anyway, metaphors and symbols and things like that. So, right. All right. I don't want to get too far on that, but that's what I... No, I, I agree with you, and, and that's why uh, I find it... Uh, I would find it comical, except for it's sad that there are people who struggle so much with this, um, saying, "Well, it, it, it has to mean this," and Joseph said it meant something else. When it's it's uh, 
methodologically unsound to say it has to mean this. And we have examples of it not meaning that. <laughs> right. So, right. Yeah. Uh, and right. we have examples of it meaning what Joseph Smith said. So that's just silly. Now, that's not, it's not that simple with the hieroglyphs. And that's uh, why I say that one, I, I, I'm just going to assume Joseph Smith made an assumption, but I don't know yet. One day we'll find out we don't have enough data to understand that yet. But the data that the other data we have is, is kind of fun and interesting, right? Why don't we move to facsimile two before we run out of time? All right. So, well, I was going to ask you that question. Do you want to make facsimile two its own, its own episode or do you want to just do it here? Do you think we can do it here or do you want to? Uh, maybe we should make it its own episode. It would be a little bit of a shorter episode, but that's that's not a bad idea to make it its own episode. That might, that might be good because we got people that are following along and maybe they're getting too lost. I, I don't know. Let's. Uh, why don't we do it as a separate episode and sum right. these parts up by saying that the, the first these first two square ones, number one and number three, are the square ones that you think of, and we have some great information on them. We have the the lead cuts of all of them. Um, and we can see some of these here on my screen right now, uh, but we don't have the original papyri for two or three. Right. We do have it for number one, or at least in part, and we don't know if it's damaged. So anyway, those are extremely interesting to look into. And then um, let's, uh, let's let them think about that and go look up the, script, the scriptures, because I really want to get into hypocephalus too. Okay. And let's, uh, let's break that up into a separate one. Well, let's do this then, because uh, yeah. as much as this is fun, like from an Egyptological uh, point of view and, and kind of understanding um, what does and doesn't work and, and questions or challenges people have had, it's also worth just taking a, a moment to talk about uh, some things that people can learn spiritually. Uh, and while I'm sure there are a lot of cool things we can learn spiritually from the symbols, I'm, I'm not really sure what all they are. I, I know more of, of that in facsimile too, I think, but... For facsimile one and three, I think most of what we learn is from the storyline. Uh, the storyline of Abraham being willing to uh, preach against idolatry and nearly being sacrificed for it uh, and being saved because he has a work to do, uh, presumably. The storyline of his being told to go uh, preach in Egypt, he's told that in, in facsimile or in Abraham chapter three, he's told to go and teach in Egypt. But in, uh, it, we never get a report of him teaching the gospel in Egypt. Even in Genesis, it just says he went there and they tried to marry Sarah and so on. But uh, you don't get an account of that. The only account we have of him doing that is facsimile three. Mm, um, fantastic. But, but there are some lessons we can learn from his being willing to do that. Uh, and, uh, and so I would urge all of our readers to take some time to think about what they can learn from this storyline and about Abraham's willingness to uh, obey God, despite the dangers, despite the, the pain, despite uh, the, the suffering that he will go through as a result of that, um, his, and then being willing to go to the same people who had just tried to kill him. And uh, well, it wasn't just, it's a while in between, but still, (laughs) because God asks him to, uh, and I don't know if it's actually the same people. He may be getting there at a time where Egypt is starting to kind of disintegrate a little bit, and he may be dealing with a king of Egypt who's actually Semitic rather than Egyptian. So and we, th- there are some complicated historical matters going on there that we really don't know and don't understand. But one way or the other, he's still going down to Egypt, a place that has not been good for him, or at least the people <laughs> haven't been good for him. And he's going to try to convert them because God asked him to, right? Job would have balked at this. Job right. did bulk in a similar situation, right? But Abraham is willing. 
And he has success, and we only learn he has success from effects uh, only three, but he has success um, because he's willing to do what God asks him to do. There are some tremendous lessons from those storylines, and I think it's worth thinking about those things. That's fantastic. I, I like that uh, that perspective. And again, the, the the aim of this podcast is to make these scriptures real. And, and what's an example of when they became real, whether that's a historical context or um, – uh, maybe an, uh, an epiphany that you might have had while reading the scriptures or something like that. How do the scriptures become real to you? And uh, how are they, how do you make them more than just printed words on a page or a story that happened to someone a long time ago? How does it make it real to you? So those, these are the kind of details that come out when you really get into the scriptures and make those things real and alive. Uh, absolutely. Well, thank you, Lamar. Well, let's do that. So uh, don't go away, guys. Come back again um, for Facsimile 2, which is my favorite because it's the most interesting looking one to me anyway. And there's a lot of stuff going on in there. And I just didn't want to get lost and run out of time. So let's, um, let's do that one coming up and, um, and, then, and get into that one. All right? Thanks so Sounds much. Good, right? Yep, we'll plan on that. We'll see you next time on The Scriptures Are Real. And uh, I'm again Lamar. This is Carrie. And uh, we'll see you on our next one talking about Facsimile 2.